Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15 is where we're going to be tonight. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. It says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Earth and sky. Sorry, let me jump ahead here. Forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, as you can see, to cover all these verses, which we're going to tonight, we've got a lot to cover. Now, we see at the beginning of the section we're looking at that it says, when the thousand years are ended. Remember, the thousand years is that millennial kingdom, the reign of Christ, which we've spent the last three weeks studying about. After the thousand year of Jesus' reign on the earth is over, Satan's going to be released from the abyss that he's going to have been in bondage in and in prison in and bound for that thousand years. He's going to be released for one last shot at accomplishing his plan of using men to defeat Jesus and rule and reign on the earth. Remember, he wants to be God very badly. In a very brief time, he's able to tempt thousands upon thousands to encircle Jerusalem, but God, God sends fire down from heaven to consume all of them. And then Satan, who cannot be killed by that fire when God consumes the enemies of God there, the humans that come to fight against Jesus in Jerusalem, Satan, who can't be killed by that fire, is captured alive and thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever, joining the Antichrist and the false prophet. All right? So that's what we're looking at at the beginning of our time. So look real quick with me back at Revelation chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. Let me kind of remind you of what happened at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of that seven-year tribulation period. Remember, Jesus comes back at the end of that time period to set up his kingdom. And it says in verses 19 and 21, John says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest of the slain by the sword, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So at the end of the tribulation period, we see the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're thrown straight into the lake of fire alive. Now that's important because as you're going to see tonight, as we do a study, a very detailed study about hell, you're going to find that the ultimate hell, if you will, is called the lake of fire. And we're going to get to that in time tonight. But Actually, the Bible teaches that when people die now apart from salvation, apart from being made righteous through God's gift, through faith in his son, or as in the Old Testament, faith in God's provision for their sin, 
They don't go straight to the lake of fire. Unbelievers go to a place called Hades. And we're going to get to that in a little bit tonight. And there they're in torment until, as you saw tonight as we read, the great white throne judgment where people who are in Hades will come up out of Hades, stand before the great white throne, and they'll be judged according to what was done in the books. And if their names aren't in the book of life, which nobody that stands before that throne is, they are then cast where? Into the lake of fire, which is the ultimate final place of hell. So at the end of the tribulation, though, period, the beast and the Antichrist, they don't go into Hades. They get thrown straight into the lake of fire alive. Satan, though, is bound. And for a thousand years, he's in a place called the abyss. And there he's kept until the thousand years are over. And he's allowed to come out and he tempts a bunch of people on the earth. And they all come to fight against Jesus in Jerusalem. And as the Bible says, fire just comes down and consumes them all. All right. So at the end of that time period, after that, Satan is then thrown into the lake of fire uh, where the beast and the false prophet are. So I'm going to ask you a real quick question before we get into some of these things. Who in the world is Satan able to tempt? Because if you remember, at the millennial kingdom, Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. He's not obviously able to tempt Jesus. Jesus is on the earth. We saw in our last study last time that David, King David, is actually going to rule as his prince from Jerusalem. Is he tempting David? No, we also saw that the 12 apostles are going to be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Are the 12 apostles going to be part of this temptation? Are they going to be tempted? No, we're also going to rule and reign with Christ. The Bible says we're going to come back and rule and reign with him. Are we going to be able to be tempted? Then who's he tempting? Those born during the millennial kingdom. Remember, the ones who were allowed to populate the humans that lived through the tribulation period, the ones who were allowed to populate the millennial kingdom as humans, they were given righteousness. He won't be tempting any of them. But there's going to be a time during the millennial kingdom where just like it was back in the time of the garden and right after the garden, Abraham, remember Adam and Eve, they lived like 900 and something years. And the Bible actually says that it's going to go back to a time like that, that if someone dies at 100 years old, they'll be considered an infant. And if someone dies at 100, they'll be considered accursed. That something was really wrong that they would die at that age. And people are going to live for a long time. And because of that and the way things are going to be, People are going to make a lot of babies during a thousand year time period. And all of those humans that are born during the millennial kingdom are the ones who are going to be tempted. Not, not all are going to respond to the temptation, but he's going to be tempted. And, but the Bible says that so many are going to come to gather against Jesus and he's going to consume them. Now, <clears throat> there are some people that try to say that this coming gathering against Jesus at the end of the thousand years is the same thing as the battle of Armageddon because in here in Revelation 20 we saw, look at verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And so there are some people that try to say that that's the same battle as the, the battle of Armageddon because it says Gog and Magog. And actually, let me just give you a real help. The word Gog just means leader or ruler, and Magog means his followers. Okay, And actually, I'm going to show you from Scripture that these are two separate battles. There's the battle of Armageddon, which happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And then there's, we'll call this the final battle, which happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. Okay, There's the battle of Armageddon that happens at the end of the tribulation period. And the final battle, which happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. And I can show you from Scripture that they're two distinct battles. And you'll see it because of some things that I just showed you in my introduction. That I had a reason why I did that, and hopefully that'll help you in a second. So 
Go back to Revelation chapter 16 and look at verses 12 through 16. Revelation 16, starting in verse 12, says the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who will go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look at verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. How do we know from what I just read here in the description of the gathering of the armies for the battle at Armageddon, how do we know that it's not the final battle that we just read about in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and following? I'm sorry? The dragons, well, actually, the dragon's loose at the final battle because he's been released from the pit to tempt everybody. I'm sorry? Definitely, is, that's part of it is the fact that it's the sixth bowl. But who's, who's involved in tempting the world to come fight against? The false prophet and the Antichrist. Do you see it? During the final battle, where are the false prophet and the Antichrist? They're already in the lake of fire because at the end of the tribulation period, they are defeated and thrown alive into the lake of fire. Satan's not thrown in it yet. He's bound for a thousand years in a different place. He's released and then he's thrown into the lake of fire. So the final battle can't be the same as the battle of Armageddon because in the battle of Armageddon, the Antichrist and the false prophet are involved in the tempting along with Satan to have people come. But during the final battle, they're in the lake of fire. They're not, they're not involved. All right. Let me show you something else, though, that's along this same line. Um, well, let me just also say this. In the, what I call the final battle, Satan alone is the only one that comes out to tempt the world. But I lean toward, and I'm just going to share this with you because of some scripture I'm going to show you. I lean toward the fact that he alone won't be the one tempting everyone. But I think he's going to be using demons with him for a couple of reasons. One from scripture and the other kind of from scripture. All right. Is, is Satan able to be everywhere at once? No, he's not omnipresent like God. So to be able to go and tempt everybody all over the whole globe is not a physical possibility for him. And even though the Bible shows that Satan is bound in the abyss for that thousand years, I think the Bible also shows us that the demons will also be bound during that time frame, and they'll be released with him during that time frame. And I want you to see that by going with me back to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 31. In Luke chapter 8, verse 26, it says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart where? Into the abyss, which is the exact same word that we saw where Satan had been bound in the abyss for a thousand years. I think personally that when Satan's bound for that thousand years, the demons are as well. 
And at the end of the thousand years, when Satan's released to go tempt the people that have been born during the millennial kingdom, the demons are possibly released at that time as well. But they'll be ultimately thrown into the lake of fire. So we see clearly in one instance that these aren't the same battles because Satan and possibly with the help of the demons in the final battle is doing the tempting himself, where in the battle of Armageddon, the Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are all involved in with the demons tempting everybody. But there's also something else different about these two battles that I want you to see from Scripture as well. In the battle of Armageddon, the dead bodies are consumed by birds and then buried for seven months. All right, go with me back to Ezekiel 39. Let me remind you of what we read about in the final battle there. Sorry, not the final battle, the battle of Armageddon uh, in, in Ezekiel 39, in the battle of Gog and Magog. Look at Ezekiel 39, verses 11 through 20. <clears throat> God says, On that day I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, in the valley, the valley of the travelers, east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for their Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the valley of Hamongog. For seven months the house of Israel will be, will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them, and it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set, up, set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of the seven months they will make their search, and when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamongog. Hamona is also the name of the city. Thus shall they cleanse the land. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assembled, come together from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood, and you shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you're filled and drink blood till you're drunk at the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. Jump back to Revelation 19 and look at verses 17 and 18. At the end of the battle of, of Armageddon, we see in Revelation 19, 17 and 18, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So at the end of the battle of Armageddon, we see the bird feast, which we see parallel described in Ezekiel 39. And at the end of the battle of Armageddon, what do they do with all the dead bodies? What happens to them? What we just read. What happens to the dead bodies? They're buried. For seven months, they're gathering all the dead bodies and burying them in order to cleanse the land. And the birds are allowed to come and eat off of their bodies and stuff like that. Now, a couple things I want to point out to you. <clears throat> in the final battle that we just read about in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10... What happens to the dead bodies at the end of that battle? They're just consumed. The fire comes down from God and poof, they're gone. So they're not the same battle. And as you're going to see, not next week because we won't be meeting next week, but the next time we come together, they won't be burying people for seven months after the final battle to cleanse the land because at the end of the millennial kingdom, as you're going to see that in a couple of weeks, God totally destroys everything that we see. The earth and everything, it's remade and refurbished, if you will, and restored during the millennial kingdom. But there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth 
And they don't have to cleanse the land because God's going to totally destroy it. It's all going to be burnt up. It's all going to disappear. And so at the end of the Battle of Armageddon, there's going to be bodies laying for a long time, so many that the birds are going to be picking the bones clean for a while, and people are going to be burying them for seven months in order to cleanse the land. There'll be a thousand years, if you will, of the Millennial Kingdom. Satan will be released. All the people that are born to the people that were allowed to populate it as humans who lived through the tribulation period, that have been given righteousness, their babies and all the ones born to them will be tempted by Satan, and many, many, many will come to fight against Jesus. Let me ask you another question then. Why are people, I mean, they've been on the earth for a thousand years. And it's been the reign of Jesus, and it's going to be an amazing time. Why are they tempted to fight against Jesus? I heard it. Their flesh. It's, it's in us. Even though Satan is bound for a thousand years, the Bible says that Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. That means people are going to still rebel during the millennial kingdom. It's in our DNA. It's been passed on. We've had this whole attitude of the devil made me do it. Remember Flip Wilson? But guess what? He might have been used years and years and years and years ago to get the ball rolling. But the Bible says in the book of James that sin starts within us. It's in us already. And it gives birth to desire, and then desire sin, and then death. Those humans that live through the tribulation period that are given righteousness still have in their flesh that sin nature. And they're going to make babies that are born that way. By the way, those of you who are parents, did you have to teach your kids to hit? Did you have to teach your kids to say, mine? Did you have to teach your kids to bite other kids in the church nursery? James says, yeah, actually, that's how we prepared them. You know, we, we got them ready. Bite first. No, it's in us. At the end of this final battle, they're consumed. So there aren't going to be any bodies to be collected for seven months and buried. And there's no need to cleanse the land because the whole land's going to be totally destroyed. But now I'm going to ask you a very, very deep theological question. And I'm very serious about this. I don't want you to give a quick answer. Because we have a temptation a lot of times in, in settings like this to just give the simple answer, the Sunday school response. I want you to really think about the question I'm about to ask you. Because it's very important that we let this truth sink in. We saw at the end of the tribulation period that the beast, which is the Antichrist, and the false prophet are thrown just straight into the lake of fire. But Satan's not thrown in the lake of fire then with them. Could he have been? Could have, God could have thrown him in then, but he didn't. He binds him in this place called the abyss for a thousand years. He's not allowed to tempt anybody during that time period. Not allowed to deceive the nations anymore during that time period. But then God releases him to go and deceive and tempt the nations at the end of the millennial kingdom. Why? Why didn't God just throw him into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet? Why the keeping him in that place and then releasing him later? By the way, the answer to this is a very deep, powerful answer. So I don't want you to just give a Sunday school answer. But why? Some people might say, well, um, so that they can be tempted. They've already got it within them. They've already got it within them. That's why there's going to be rebellion during the millennial kingdom. Satan's going to be bound 
Yet the Bible says those who don't come and bring their sacrifices and their offerings to the Lord, Jesus, during the millennial kingdom, he won't let it rain in their land during that time period. So you can't say, well, Satan has to tempt those people too. No, they got it within them. Any ideas? You got one that's abstract. Let's give it a shot. Let's give it a shot. That is out there. She said that because God originally loved Lucifer, he's given him one last chance. Actually, the Bible says that once the angels made their decision, there was no more opportunity. He didn't die for the angels. So that's a good guess, though. You ready for the deep theological answer? You want to give, you want to give, give a shot? But they don't need Satan's help with that. They already got it in them. They never saw evil? There's going to be evil during the millennial kingdom. Remember, the Bible says whoever dies at 100 will be considered accursed. If people disobey God's commands, if people aren't going to rebel and there's not going to be evil during the millennial kingdom, why is Jesus ruling with a rod of iron? There's going to be rebellion during the millennial kingdom. Way less. But we're coming back with him when he comes back to have the, and he gets the victory at the end of the tribulation period. So we'll have already experienced the victory. Well, the defeat of Satan in that way. Well, he was already defeated at the cross. I, I'm doing this for a reason. Go ahead. You, you jumped ahead of me. I wanted you to wrestle with it and then say, ooh, but that really doesn't work. Ooh, but that really doesn't work. You know why? The answer is, and this is the deep theological answer. I'm going to show you from Scripture it is. The answer is, we don't know. And for any, you had it right. For anybody that says, well, here's why God's doing this. I'm going to say it nicely. They're trying to be more impressive than they really are. Go with me back to the book of Job. Go with me to Job chapter 42. And as you're turning to Job 42, let me remind you. And give you a quick synopsis of the book of Job for those who that don't know the book of Job. And by the way, if you're not even sure where Job is, it's right before Psalms. In Psalm 42, I'm sorry, Job 42 is where we're going we're gonna to read. Job 42 is where we're going to read. But before we read there, let me just kind of set the stage. The Bible says in chapter 1 of Job that in the times when the angels appeared before God and Satan came with him. The reason why Satan comes with the angels and appear before God is because Satan is an angel as well. He's a created being. And just like the other angels have to check in for inspection, if you will, Satan also has to check in for inspection. And the Bible says in chapter 1 of Job, God says to Satan, what have you been up to? Now, let me ask you a question. Does God not know what Satan's been up to? Why is he asking him a question about what you've been up to when God already knows what he's been up to. Yeah, well, definitely see if he's truthful, but he already knows the answer to that question as well. Actually, let me just tell you, he's jerking Satan's chain. You see, Satan can't say to God, none of your business. I mean, the fact that he's even showing up when all the other angels have to appear means he has to appear. 
What does the Bible say in the book of 2 Peter that Satan's out there doing when he goes to and fro throughout the earth? He's looking for someone to devour. That's what the Bible says. He roams like a roaring lion throughout the earth, seeking, to, seeking someone to devour. God says to Satan, what you been up to? Satan says, I've been going to and fro throughout the earth. Again, we know from Peter why. And then God points out Job and he says, well, if you're looking for someone to devour, how about my servant Job? Satan says, I know Job. And the only reason he's as wonderful as you say he is is because you've got this hedge of protection around him. I can't touch him. You take away that hedge of protection, you'll see a different attitude in Job. And God says, I'll tell you what, I'll set the parameters. You can't touch him, but you can do anything else you want. You just can't touch him. What does Satan do? Kills all of his family, takes all of his possessions, left his wife. We'll see in the next chapter two in a second why. Well, what was Job's response? What was Job's response? He says, naked I came into this world, naked I'll return, and he continued to worship God. Chapter two says, when the angels appeared again before God, and Satan came with them. God says to Satan, what you been up to? Same conversation, going to and fro throughout the earth. God again points out Job, who wonderfully passed this test, if you will. He's a pawn between Satan and God. He's simply a pawn. And God and Satan are playing chess and using him. And God points out Job again and says, you notice Job? Satan says, the only reason Job responded that way is because you wouldn't let me touch him, skin for skin. And listen closely to what Satan says. He says, if you let me touch him, he will curse you to your face. God says, I'll tell you what, I'll set the parameters. You can touch him, but you can't kill him. Do what you want, you just cannot kill him. And Satan gives Job these unbelievable painful sores and boils all over his body to the point that he's just in absolute anguish. And his wife comes and says, Curse God and die. Where's, who's talking through her at the time? Satan is. And he says, you're a foolish woman. Shouldn't we accept from God the bad as well as the good? But as you keep reading in the book of Job, though, don't stop in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Job, after his friends aren't much help because they keep saying, it must be because of you. And he keeps saying, look, I'm, this is not happening because of my sin. I've done the checklist. This hasn't happened because of my sin. I haven't done anything to deserve this. He then starts to say things like this. The problem is, there's no way that a man can defend himself before God. There's no way that a man can have a conversation with God and say, why are you doing this? I wish I could just speak to it, but I can't. Oh, if there was a mediator between man and God, and little does he know the Spirit of God begins prophesying about Jesus Christ. You, you go back and look later on at Job chapter 33, and you will see one of the most wonderful descriptions of salvation you've ever seen in your entire life. Well, actually, I can see in your faces you've never read it. Go to Job 33. Look at Job 33, starting in verse 14. Uh, Elihu is now speaking to Job. And Elihu says, For God speaks in one way and in two, and though a man does not perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed. 
and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth, and let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. And he sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. You want a picture of salvation right there? I sinned and didn't do what was right. But this one mediator, he paid it for me and God gave me righteousness. Job, through his whole struggle, Saying, keeps saying things like, I wish I could just talk to God and defend myself. I wish I could have a face-to-face with God and, and just ask him a few questions. Well, in chapter 40, uh, 38, God shows up. And God says, hey, you said you wanted to have a face-to-face with me? I'm going to let you ask any question you want. I'm going to ask you a couple ones quick. And then once you're done answering my questions, you can go ahead and ask your questions. And God pretty much, chapter 38 and following, says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he starts using creation, and all he does is use creation and animals and, 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 and where the snow is stored and how the waves know where to stop and all this stuff. He just uses creation to display his glory to Job. And when he's done, look at verse, chapter 42, verse 1. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And then he quotes his own self. He says, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent, repent in dust and ashes. In other words, Job says, here I was saying... I need to have a face-to-face. I want God to come hear me, and I'm going to ask him some questions. And now that I've seen you, I'm good. I talked about stuff that I didn't even understand. Folks, let me ask you a question. How many of you had to say whether or not you were even going to be born? And isn't it interesting that we sit around trying to figure out why God would do what God does in the world that he's made for his own glory? You want to have it a lot easier in this day and age of chaos? Let God be God. And when we don't understand what he's doing, we just trust him. We don't have to know. And by the way, for those of you that have read the book of Job, does God ever answer Job's question as to why this happened? Never. Never. And Job was okay with it once he saw God. I can look you in the eye and tell you, I don't know why Satan isn't going to just be thrown straight into the lake of fire. 
I don't know why he's being bound for a thousand years and then released to tempt those at the end of the millennial kingdom. I don't know why, but God has a plan. And the only thing I can tell you is, Scripture seems to point toward it has a whole lot less to do with us and a whole lot more to do with what God's doing for his own glory to the angelic realm. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 10. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's in the middle of a whole conversation here, but he says in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's plan is that right now, through the church, his manifold, unbelievably huge wisdom would be made known to who? Who are the rulers in the heavenly places? The angels and the demons. Doesn't, I said to you, doesn't Peter say that the angels, 1 Peter chapter 1, say that the angels long to look into this relationship that we've been given? For some reason, we're on a much bigger stage than we have ever thought. We've always heard, do your good deeds before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. And we think that we're to live our life so that people in the world will see who God is and give him glory. And yes, that's true. But let me just tell you, the Bible says that's actually just a small part of the stage that we're on. Right now, through the church and God doing what he's doing in the church age, he's desiring to display his wisdom to the angels. And I think the millennial kingdom is displaying some more stuff to the angels. I think Satan being released at the end of the millennial kingdom has to do with a whole lot of stuff to be revealed to the angels. And doesn't the Bible say that someday we're going to rule over the angels? In our family, whenever someone says, what are you doing? We always love to quote a line from Despicable Me where that one kid villain always says super cool stuff you wouldn't understand. You know what God's doing? By binding Satan and not throwing him into the lake of fire, but binding him and then allowing him and then ultimately going into the lake of fire. You know what God's doing? Super cool stuff you wouldn't understand. And let's be okay with that. Do you realize most Christians tear each other up Fighting over stuff that we don't understand. We fight over how God accomplishes his salvation. And can anybody honestly say they know how he does it? No, we just know that he does. We fight over a whole lot of stuff because we want to figure God out. Listen closely. When you figure God out, who becomes God you're never going to figure him out. And don't try. Just believe the stuff that he's revealed and the stuff that we don't understand. Don't waste your time arguing over it. Look closely now. Go back to Revelation chapter 20. There's a few things that I can't wait to show you because we need to clarify some bad theology that's in the world and unfortunately has crept into the church. In Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 10. And the devil who, was, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet already were. And they will be what? 
tormented day and night forever and ever. Don't miss this. Satan is not ruling in hell. Satan, first off, right now, isn't even in hell. Yet most people talk about how hell is a place where Satan is and how Satan's there now and he's ruling. And we hear all the jokes and the stories about how Satan controls who's in hell and what they do and all this stuff. Folks, Satan's not in hell. He's dragging his feet as much as he can because he knows he's ending up there one day, but he's not there now. Where's Satan right now, according to the scriptures? Where? Not just here, though. He's not only here, roaming to and fro, looking for someone to devour. He's also in the presence of God, the Bible teaches, because he's the accuser of the brethren, accusing brethren day and night. He's able in the supernatural realm to go boop, 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 back and forth between here and there. But he's also allowed in the presence of God. God would not allow sin to be in his presence. Yes, Satan's in his presence all the time. Plus, the Bible says there's nowhere you can go that God's not there. So is God allow Satan, evil in his presence? Yes. There'll be a point where he'll be finally cast out at the midpoint of the tribulation out of the presence of God, never to be allowed back into the presence of God. He'll be thrown down to the earth permanently, and that's when he goes really after everybody because he knows that his time is short. But Satan's not in hell now. And secondly, when he does go to hell, guess what? He's not ruling. He's going to be tormented forever and ever. And that's something that we need to really understand so that when people... Start talking like hell's no big deal. It's going to be a party. I can't wait to party with my friends. You have an opportunity right here, just without having to get into anything real big, to say, did you know that the Bible actually says that Satan won't be enjoying hell, and he's not going to be ruling in hell, but he'll be tormented in hell? They're going, "Uh uh-uh. And you can just show them that one verse right there. And let the Spirit of God take care of itself from there. A quick study... Of the Bible's description of hell, though, will help us in the next verses. In verses 11, let me remind you of verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. There are three words that are in the Greek translated, in, translated as hell in our English Bibles. Let me say that again. In the Greek New Testament, there are three words that are three separate Greek words that are all translated hell in our English Bibles. And knowing what they are will really help us a little bit to really have a deeper understanding of what the Bible means by hell. All right, the first one, if you want to take notes, it's T-A-R-T-A-R-O-S, Tartarus, T-A-R-T-A-R-O-S. And it's only used one time. This word is translated hell, but in the Greek it's Tartarus. And I want to show you where it is. It's in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, then he goes on and says he's able to deal with the unrighteous in the world as well. But look at what he says. There are certain angels 
that sinned and he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, are all the angels that sinned in this place of torment? Obviously, no, because the Bible shows that there are demons. There are demons on the earth while Jesus was on the earth. We read about that already. But there are some angels that sinned who are, were immediately chained up. We don't have time to get into all this, but if you go back and look at Genesis chapter 6, you'll see that the Bible says that there were some angels who came down to the earth and started making babies with women on the earth, humans. And those angels who left their position were chained until the day of to judgment. And that's, they're in a place called Tartarus, which is also translated hell. Now, real quickly, why in the world did angels do this? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, God says at the beginning, he said that there's going to be a seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of Satan. Now, remember, Satan at this time does not know who that is. Satan's not all-knowing. The only stuff Satan knows is what the Bible says. And at, at that time, he just knew that the, God had just said, a seed of this woman, the descendant of this woman is going to crush his head. Well, she gives birth to these two boys, Cain and Abel. One's righteous, one's not. What does he do? He has the unrighteous one kill the righteous one. And his attitude is, if one of her babies is going to kill me, I want to get him first. And you see this all the way through the history of mankind. Whenever there seemed to be a righteous one like Joseph or, uh, or others like that, Satan goes after him. And even when Jesus comes on the scene now to be born, at now, by the way, Satan knows who fully it is. What does Satan have done after Jesus is born? All the babies, two years old and down, are put to death in that whole area Again, God protected his seed and all that. But back in Genesis 6, there was something that Satan did that he thought was going to win it for him. He decided, if one of the seed of the woman is going to kill me, I want to corrupt the gene pool. And so he had angels come down and make babies with mankind. So now the gene pool is corrupted. By the way, how does God respond to this? Oh, he takes those angels and he puts them in a place of torment until their day of judgment. But what does he do with the gene pool on, man, on the earth? He wipes it off, doesn't he? He takes Noah and his family and he protects them in the ark and he kills everybody else on the earth. Keeping the gene pool pure. And he starts over. And those angels aren't allowed to do that anymore because they were put into this place called Tartarus. All right? But they're kept there until... A day of judgment that is still coming for them. There's another word that's translated uh, hell in our Bibles, and it's actually used 32 times in the New Testament, and it's the word Hades. Because of the time and all I want to cover tonight, I'm just going to give you some scriptures to look at. I'm going to take you, I'm going to have you read one, uh, but write this down Matthew 11, 20 through 24. That's Matthew 11, 20 through 24. Um, Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. By the way, who's in charge? Who's in controlling hell and Hades? God is. But keep in mind now, Hades is not the final hell. Hades is a place, as you're about to see, of fiery torment, but it's a place of holding for humans who die having rejected God's offer of salvation. And they're held there until the time of the judgment at the end as well. And we saw that as we read. They're going to come out of Hades, stand before the great white throne, and then they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Just like there's a place of torment for the angels who rebelled in Genesis 6, and they're held until the judgment, there's a place of torment that's a holding for humans 
Well, Matthew 11, 20 through 24, Revelation 1, 17 and 18. We already read in Revelation 20, 13 and 14. But go with me to Luke 16. Luke 16, verses 19 through 24. There's a couple things I want to bring out from this passage tonight. Again, some more bad theology that needs to be clarified, not only in the world, but also in the church. In Luke 16, look at verses 19 through 24. Jesus is telling a story here, but it's obvious this isn't a parable because he's naming names. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. By the way, we read that and we say, oh, isn't that nice? I don't know. You have to remember, dogs back in this day were wild packs of dogs, and they weren't being nice. They say when a Doberman is licking you, he's not being friendly. He's basting you. All right? These dogs were hoping this guy would hurry up and die so they could eat him. The poor man, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Catch that. Lazarus, who had been given righteousness, goes straight to the presence of God. The rich man who was unright was unrighteous, goes where? Hades. Not the ultimate lake of fire hell, but he goes to a place called hell, but it's really Hades. It's a place of fiery torment. Even By the way, his body was buried. His body's in a grave somewhere, yet even though his body was in a grave, he still could feel it physically in his spiritual body, and he said, I'm in agony and torment in this flame. Now, I'm going to come back to this passage in just a bit. So put a bookmark here because I want to come back and show you something. But there's also a third word that's translated hell in our uh, English Bibles. In the Greek, it is Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, Gehenna. And it's used 12 times in the New Testament. One of them is Matthew 5, verses 20 and 21, 21 and 22. I want you to see that one because it's kind of cool how it's, Jesus describes it here. Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. In Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Did you catch that? In the Greek, that's Gehenna. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, turn there real quick. You're in Matthew 5, jump over to Matthew 10, look at verse 28. Again, we'll see this word Gehenna translated hell in the English Bible. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, And don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Hell. And again, this is Gehenna. And Gehenna is the lake of fire. Go with me to Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, because in Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And by the way, in the Greek, that's Gehenna. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, the lake of fire in the Greek is Gehenna. 
So we see now that just as there was a place of torment for the angels that sinned in Genesis 6 until the time of judgment, there's a place of fiery torment for the unbelieving mankind called Hades, and they're kept there until the time of judgment. Satan's going to be held in an abyss, so the demons, for a time period until the time of judgment. And ultimately, though, all the unrighteous angels and humans and Satan himself will go to a place called the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus himself describing this place described hell or the lake of fire as, listen closely, a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. In other words, don't let people teach you that God wouldn't let someone suffer in hell forever. So they may suffer for a little while, but then they'll be extinguished and they don't exist anymore. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says they're tormented forever and ever. And on top of that, if a worm won't die in this place and the fire's never quenched, sounds like hell lasts forever and ever. By the way, do you, know what, you want to know why heaven, hell lasts forever and ever? Because all of those in hell have chosen to pay for their own sin instead of accepting God's offer of payment for their sin. Oh, and by the way, can anybody pay for your own sin? So you'll be doing it for eternity if you choose to pay for it yourself. Now, go back to Luke 16, though. I really want you to see something. As we just read in Luke 16, uh, the, the rich man cries out from Hades in torment, and he says, have Lazarus come and stick his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. But look at what Abraham says in verse 25. Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you, which is stupid, may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Did you catch that? There is a chasm between Hades and paradise, or the presence of God. Abraham's side is described as here. Those who are righteous go carried by the angels to be with the Lord, and those who are unrighteous go to Hades. And there's a chasm between the two where nobody passes back and forth. That's important. Because a lot of you were taught that there's a place called purgatory, right? That you go there for a little while, but if people pray you out and pay enough money, you can be prayed out of purgatory into the presence of God. Folks, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed for man once to die and then face the judgment. Once you die, your fate has been sealed. What your choice in this life is, whatever choice you make in this life will determine what you're gonna, where you're going to spend eternity, whether it's smoking or non-smoking. But don't miss the fact that the Bible says clearly there's a chasm between the two and nobody passes back and forth. Once you're in heaven, you're in heaven. Once you're in Hades or in hell, you're not going to heaven. Oh, you will come out of Hades. But where do you go if you come out of Hades? Revelation 20 shows us they go to the lake of fire. Now, the Bible then says the lake of fire is the second death. Now, I want to do this real quick because we, we got to do this fast, but I can't wait to show you this. Why is the lake of fire called the second death? It's because we who were, well, 
all of us were dead in our trespasses and sin, weren't we? The Bible says that. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I don't want you to miss this. This is kind of cool. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. That's what Paul says here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of, our, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all were born dead spiritually. But God, look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved. Through faith in Jesus, God makes us alive. We were born spiritually dead. Adam and Eve, when they were, when they were created, they were alive spiritually. Not, alive, not only alive physically, they were alive spiritually. They were able to walk and talk with God, no big deal. But remember, God says, the day you eat of this tree, the day you disobey me, the day you don't trust my commands, the day you go against what I say, you will die. They ate of the tree. Did they die? Not physically, but spiritually they died. And they weren't able to be in the presence of God anymore. We were all born that way. Too many people, when I've asked them, when did they become a Christian? They'd say, well, I've always been a Christian. It's not possible according to the scriptures. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And at some point, Christ made us alive. There needs to be a point where we respond to God's offer of salvation and he gives us new life. Go with me to John chapter 5 real quickly. John chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. <clears throat> In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus is speaking and he says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Don't miss that. If you have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, even though you were dead at one time, you will never experience the second death because you have now been made alive. You will never come into judgment. You've passed from death to life. And as Jesus told Martha in John chapter 11, whoever lives in me, lives and believes in me will live even though he may die physically, but whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Oh, your body may go back to the dust of the earth, but you will, because of you've been made alive spiritually, you go right into the presence of God. Remember when Stephen was being stoned there in Acts chapter 7? He wasn't saying, ow, ooh, ee, oof, when the stones were hitting him. He just said, hey, I just saw heaven opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And that's a cool thing because the Bible says that when he finished what he did on the cross, he went into the presence of God the Father and sat down. So if Jesus was standing, he must have been standing in honor of Stephen to give him the old standing ovation as he was passing from that world to this world to the next. Folks, if you die physically, don't worry about it. You're never going to experience it because you're going to pass from this life to the next. The Bible says you go straight to be with the Lord and you won't experience the judgment. The second death, though, is all those people who were dead spiritually at one time, separated from God. They're going to come up out of the places where they've been held and they're going to come back into the presence of God. They're going to be standing right before the great white throne back in his presence. And they're going to die, because the word death means separation. They're going to die a second time, and they're going to go into the lake of fire. Now, 
Also, don't miss this. Go with me back to John, sorry, Revelation chapter 20 and look closely again at, at verses uh, 11 and following. Then I saw a great white throne and on him and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Don't miss that. At the beginning of Revelation, we see God on his throne and everybody's all encircling the throne and worshiping God. And everybody's just gathered around him at this point. Everybody that's around him says, you know what? We're going to give him some space. Let's just give him some room because this is the time of his wrath and his judgment. But don't miss this. And I saw the dead, verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books, plural, were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The dead were judged according to everything they've done on the earth. It's all been recorded in books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then if their names weren't in the book of life, which, by the way, all those who are here, their names aren't in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Don't miss that, folks. God's keeping track. I could show you, by the way, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, if you want to write that down, Revelation 2, 11, and Revelation 3, 5, and 6, Revelation 2, 11, Revelation 3, 5, and 6, the Bible says, Jesus speaking to the churches, if you are my child, you will never have your name blotted out of the book of life. So there's no way that your name won't be in that book if you're in Christ. And on top of that, he said, you'll never be hurt by the second death. Jesus made that promise to the churches. You'll never experience the second death, and your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. But these people, their names aren't in the book of life, and they're going to experience a second death. But before they go to hell, they're each individually judged according to what had been recorded in the books. Again, because of time, I'm going to give you two more passages of Scripture that I just want you to write down. The Bible says very clearly that God keeps track of everything. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 that says, on the day of judgment, we will have to give an account. When I say we, I mean the unbelieving we. Thank God we, who are in Christ, won't. But the unbelieving we will have to give an account of every idle word. Word for word what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36. They will have to give an account for every idle word. There isn't a thing that God isn't keeping track of. Doesn't the Bible say that he keeps our cheers in a jar? Doesn't the Bible say that he knows the number of hairs in our head? He also knows every little thing the unrighteous world is done. Yes, they're going to be judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, who, those who knew what they were supposed to do but didn't do it will be beaten with many blows. Those who didn't, didn't, do, didn't know but did things deserving of punishment will be beaten with fewer blows. There's levels of punishment in hell. And just like that, there will also be levels of reward in heaven. There's levels of reward in heaven. Also, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, Solomon says this, after he spent the whole book wrestling with the purpose of life and the meaning of life and trying to find satisfaction in folly and wisdom and building things and hard work, he finally comes to the, finally comes to the end of the matter in chapter 12, and he says, here's the end of the matter. What God wants us for us is to fear him and to obey his commandments because God will hold everyone accountable in the end. By the way, you say, wait a minute, we're supposed to obey his commandments? 
In John chapter 6, verse 28, a bunch of people came to Jesus and they said, what must we do to do the works that God requires? What does he want from us? Jesus said, this is the work of God. Believe in the one that he sent. And I want to close tonight by sending you out with a very encouraging passage of scripture. Was God keeping track of all your sins before Christ? Yes, he was. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. This is our closing passage for tonight. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Everything we just talked about was all summed up right there in that one passage. Everything we've looked at tonight was all there in that one passage. Oh, was there a record that was against you with his legal demands? What happened to it? He nailed it to the cross with him when he died for you. And in doing so, I don't even know how this works, but verse 15, in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Who are the rulers and authorities he's talking about? The spiritual realm. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you've been made alive now together with Jesus Christ. Live in that. Some people struggle with the fact that Jesus died for our sins, past, present, and future. And they say, it's easy for me to grasp that he died for my past sins, but the ones I'm going to do, they're already covered. Well, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, how many of them were future? They were all future, weren't they? That means the ones tomorrow are already covered too. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Folks, there's a great white throne judgment day coming, and we won't experience it. The unrighteous will. Satan's not going to be ruling in hell. He'll be tormented with everybody else forever and ever. And there's no purgatory. So if you have anybody that the Lord lays on your heart, pray for them that God will put someone in their path. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send a laborer to the, work, the harvest field to go witness to them because the time's getting short. Pretty soon all this stuff we've been studying in Revelation is about to happen speedily. Remember that word at the beginning? Behold, I come quickly. It's about to happen and pick up speed. Thanks for coming. We'll see you in two weeks.